Episode 63. What do the early Christians think about Mary? Part 2. Well, it's been about two months since I did the first part of this, and we talked about Mary as the mother of God, and how that was proclaimed at the Council of Ephesus in 431, that the early church called Mary the mother of God, and not just the mother of Jesus or the mother of Christ, but the mother of God, because that safeguarded the truth about who Christ was as fully God and fully man. In the second part of what the early church thought about Mary, we're going to talk about the second of the four Marian dogmas. The first was Mary as mother of God. The second is Mary as perpetual virgin. That she was a virgin both before and after the birth of Christ and during. That is, that there was no disruption of her physical virginity even during birth. This second dogma was officially defined as a dogma or as a revealed truth of the faith at the Second Council of Constantinople, and that happened in 553. But it was believed by the early fathers of the church, and we'll see that. But before we get into the main sources of the belief in this particular dogma, let's just think about it as a reasonable truth in its own right. If Mary was chosen by God to give birth to the God-man, it is reasonable to expect that she would have special graces, special privileges, that her pregnancy and the birth of the God-man would be unique and special, that there would be miraculous aspects to it, and that Christ wouldn't be born just as one of many, that Mary had a bunch of kids and Christ just happened to be one of them, or thinking that God didn't set Mary aside, set her apart in a special way. One way we can think about it, and, and this is something that is hinted at both in Scripture and by the fathers of the church, is that Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant. And you'll recall that in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, which just held symbols that were foreshadowing of Christ, right? They held the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the manna in the desert, the bread from heaven, and the priestly staff of Aaron. So those symbolized Christ as the lawgiver with the Ten Commandments, the true bread come down from heaven in the manna and as the new high priest in the staff of Aaron. So you'll remember how much sanctity surrounded the Ark of the Covenant, how even the high priest could only approach it once a year, how if it was touched, it would lead to immediate death. So if Mary is the fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant, if the Ark of the Covenant was just a foreshadowing of Mary, the one who really held within herself what was only symbolized by the items in the Ark of the Covenant, how much more would she be so to speak, untouchable, that she had one special purpose in the plan of God, that her holiness was unique, and that it would be beneath her dignity to have a marital life or to have a procreative life just like anyone else. So just thinking about it in that way, it seems reasonable to expect that Mary would have a unique kind of life with unique graces and unique holiness, and that it doesn't seem fitting that she would have many children or live a life like any other woman would. Now, let's look at some of the sources here. And the main one is a, it's non-scriptural, but it is a historical document, and it was seen as a worthwhile and important historical document, even in its time. It wasn't seen like the other apocryphal gospels, the ones that contained a lot of things that didn't mesh with the gospels, the true gospels. It's called the Proto-Evangelium of James. It was written in the year 120 or so. So it would have been within the lifetime of those who knew Mary, theoretically. So let's just read a few excerpts from that. 
And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by St. Anne, saying, Anne, Anne, the Lord has heard your prayer, and you shall conceive and shall bring forth, and your seed shall be spoken of in all the world. And Anne said, As the Lord my God lives, if I beget either male or female, I will bring it as a gift to the Lord my God, and it shall minister to him in the holy things all the days of its life. And from the time she was three, Mary was in the temple of the Lord, as if she were a dove that dwelt there. Another excerpt. And when she was twelve years old, there was held a council of priests, saying, Behold, Mary has reached the age of twelve years in the temple of the Lord. What then shall we do with her, lest perchance she defile the sanctuary of the Lord? And they said to the high priest, You stand by the altar of the Lord, go in and pray concerning her, and whatever the Lord shall manifest to you, that also will we do. And he prayed concerning her, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, saying, Zechariah, Zechariah, go out and assemble the widowers of the people, and let them bring each his rod, and to whomsoever the Lord shall show a sign, his wife shall she be. And Joseph was chosen. And the priest said to Joseph, You have been chosen by lot to take into your keeping the virgin of the Lord. But Joseph refused, saying, I have children, and I am an old man, and she is a young girl. So, as I said, this document was written within the memory of Mary and even some of the apostles. So it indicates a tradition of Mary's virginity that was already there, and it holds a credibility as an actual historical narrative of what Mary's childhood was like, of what actually happened in her childhood. It's from this document alone that we have the names of, of Mary's parents, Anne and Joachim. So unlike other non-canonical documents of the time or of a time after the last gospel was written, this one had credibility in the early church. It was seen as a very important historical document, even if it wasn't considered inspired. And it matches up with what some of the fathers of the church said about Mary as Ark of the Covenant, as pure and sinless, as is indicated or implied in some words of scripture and is said explicitly by the fathers of the church. There's even a harmony between the events of the Proto-Evangelium and some of the events of the Gospels. They kind of fill in the blanks. For example, this excerpt, And Annas the scribe came to Joseph and saw that Mary was with child. And he ran away to the priest and said to him, Joseph, whom you did vouch for, has committed a grievous crime. And the priest said, How so? And he said, He has defiled the virgin whom he received out of the temple of the Lord and has married her by stealth. And the priest said, Mary, why have you done this? And why have you brought your soul low and forgotten the Lord your God? And she wept bitterly, saying, As the Lord my God lives, I am pure before him and know not man. So there you see even the words of Mary to the angel Gabriel. How can this be since I know not man? And that Joseph saw that Mary was with child and knew that he hadn't been the father. So it has a credibility because it harmonizes with the Gospels rather than contains events that seem to contradict the events of the Gospels. So there's really no dispute that Mary was a virgin before Christ was conceived in her womb. So all Christians pretty much know that Mary was a virgin, that it was a virgin birth. That, however, she remained a virgin afterwards is the one thing that is disputed by other Christian denominations. But keeping in mind not only that it would be unfitting that Mary just continue on to have a typical married life after she gave birth to the God-man, the Savior of the world, and after she had vowed perpetual virginity in the temple as a child, and also reiterated that vow of virginity to Gabriel when Gabriel said that she would be with child, it also isn't really supported by the seeming evidence in the Gospels. For example, in the English translations of Scripture, referring to the brethren of Christ or the brothers of Christ, there's plenty of scholarship on this that you can look up. But also keep in mind that Christ entrusted Mary to John the Apostle, 
when he was dying on the cross, which would have been strange had Mary had other children. In the early church, one explanation was that Joseph, since he was an elderly widower, had other children, and so his sons were called the brothers of Christ. They would be what we consider stepbrothers. Uh, another explanation given by St. Jerome is that brothers, as said in idiom, also meant cousins. So we're basically free to believe what we want about that since the most important thing we're preserving here is Mary's virginity, which is said expressly in scripture. Let's see what some of the fathers of the church have to say on this. First, we have Origen. Writing in the mid-3rd century, he says, quote, The Proto-Evangelium of James records that the brethren of Jesus were sons of Joseph by a former wife, whom he married before Mary. Now those who say so wish to preserve the honor of Mary and virginity to the end, so that body of hers which was appointed to minister to the word might not know intercourse with the man after the Holy Spirit came into her and the power from on high overshadowed her. And I think it in harmony with reason that Jesus was the first fruit among men of the purity which consists in perpetual chastity, and Mary was among women. For it were not pious to ascribe to any other than to her the first fruit of virginity." St. Athanasius, whom we've mentioned before, he was really big in defending the orthodox understanding of Christ's incarnation. He says, quote, "...let those therefore who deny that the Son is by nature from the Father and proper to his essence, deny also that he took true human flesh from the ever-Virgin Mary." End quote. Note there the term ever-Virgin, perpetual virgin. St. Augustine, well-known, writing in the beginning of the 5th century in 401, in being born of a virgin who chose to remain a virgin even before she knew who was to be born of her, Christ wanted to approve virginity rather than to impose it. And he wanted virginity to be a free choice even in that woman in whom he took upon himself the form of a slave. He says in another place, quote, She was a virgin conceiving, a virgin bearing, a virgin pregnant, a virgin bringing forth, a virgin perpetual. Why do you wonder at this, O man? End quote. So it's hard to be more explicit than that. St. Augustine indicates that not only was she a virgin before and during, but also after the birth of Christ. St. Cyril of Alexandria, mid-5th century, quote, The word himself, coming into the Blessed Virgin herself, assumed for himself his own temple from the substance of the Virgin, and came forth from her a man and all that could be externally discerned, while interiorly he was true God. Therefore he kept his mother a virgin even after her childbearing, end quote. Pope Leo, in 450, quote, Christ's origin is different, but his human nature is the same. Human usage and custom were lacking, but by divine power a virgin conceived, a virgin bore, and virgin she remained, end quote. So there you have some pretty prominent names uh, saying pretty early on what was obviously already by that time a solid tradition of Mary's virginity, her perpetual virginity, not just before and during the birth, but also after Regarding virginity during the birth, we consider that the birth, of course, was miraculous, that usually in the process of birth, there would have been physical damage to her body that would have broken her physical integrity, her physical virginity. But St. Augustine basically says, why would you be so surprised that Christ could be born of her without damaging her physical virginity when you're confronted with all the other miracles, right? That God created everything out of nothing. God became incarnate in human nature all the miracles of Christ, and he even points to specifically Christ entering the upper room even though it was locked. He makes a comparison to that and Christ being delivered from the womb of the Blessed Virgin without breaking her physical integrity. So that's just a brief summary of some of the reasons why this is considered a dogma of the church, that it is implied, if not explicitly mentioned in many texts of scripture, that the early church believed it as being revealed 
and it seems fitting to our reason that it would be so, that Mary remained perpetually a virgin. If you'd like to learn more about this particular dogma and the other Marian dogmas, I'd recommend that you get a big blue book just entitled Mariology. It's compiled by a pretty prominent uh, Marian scholar named Mark Miravalle. It's a great resource to learn more about Mary, not just on this topic, but on anything relating to the Blessed Virgin. Thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief. Please give a five-star rating and a good review, and consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash catholicdailybrief. God bless.